This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan. This is episode 19, a bonus episode, A Church for a Tomb. Thank you very much for tuning in to our fourth and last episode in a short series throughout the last week of October, where we take a look at some of the creepier accounts left to us from the medieval period. On today's episode, we will try to catch a glimpse of those things that go bump in the night once again. Today, we talk ghosts, or as the English of a millennium ago called them, revenants. I hope you enjoy the show. From the earliest days of the church, Christians have struggled mightily with the idea that ghosts exist. Once a person was dead, they were given a Christian burial and the community would move on. That person was now in God's hands or the devil's clutches. Either way, he or she was no longer of this plane. On that hand, ghosts could not exist because every soul went somewhere. However, there is always another hand. And this other hand posed the question, why then, if all souls went somewhere upon death, would people consistently report ghostly apparitions even upon Christian burial? Why, if the church's word was final, why would people continue to test the church's word and report such stories if they weren't allowed to exist within the established parameters of belief? And should ghosts be impossible, then... Is there any proof beyond faith itself of an afterlife, Christian or otherwise? This was no easy question to answer. And though the church's early position of ghosts and apparitions was final, they were, after centuries of such reports, forced to re-examine their official position. But even as recently as today, the current catechism of the Catholic Church, adopted in 1992 under Pope John Paul II's leadership, states unequivocally that, quote, all forms of divination are to be rejected. It continues to explain that the divination in question includes, quote, recourse to Satan and his demons, conjuring up the dead, or other practices falsely supposed to unveil the future, end quote. Now, the fact that they even address things like calling up demons, bringing the dead back to life, and precognition, or even possible explanations quite a bit, in my opinion, but this does imply that the understanding of a soul's continuance past the point of death is embraced within the Catholic structure. Conclusion? To the practicing Catholic, ghosts most assuredly exist. 
Besides, when the spirit of Samuel appears to the witch of Endor in the first book of Samuel, one has to simply accept that the existence of earthbound spirits is intrinsically written within the foundation of Christian belief. And thus we find ourselves, along with the medieval Christian, struggling mightily with trusting our intellectual and spiritual shepherds, while also wrestling with logic and applying them to both the secular and the spiritual side of things. Make no mistake, the church, as we've already seen this week, is well aware of ghost stories. In this episode, we'll take a look at several such stories while exploring a a little history behind each one. The first one I have, titled St. Malachi's Sister, Born Mael Madoc Uamorger, the man who had become Saint Malachi, was born in 1094 in Armagh, Ireland. He would not only become the archbishop of his hometown, but he would, he would also become Ireland's very first native-born saint. He would die in 1148 and canonized by Pope Clement III in 1190. This ghostly story of St. Malachi was first told in St. Bernard of Clairvaux's Life of St. Malachi, written no later than 1153, because that was the year that St. Bernard passed away. Wearing the habit of his close acquaintance, St. Malachi, the latter having died a few years earlier. St. Bernard writes about the relationship between St. Malachi and his sister, very much strained but ultimately resolved. St. Bernard writes, Malachi's sister, whom we've mentioned before, died, and we must not pass over the visions which he saw about her, for the saint indeed abhorred her carnal life, and with such intensity that he vowed he would never see her alive in the flesh. But now that her flesh was destroyed, his vow was also destroyed, and he began to see in spirit her whom in the body he would not see. One night he heard in a dream the voice of one saying to him that his sister was standing outside in the court, and that for thirty entire days she had tasted nothing, and when he awoke he soon understood the sort of food for want of which she was pining away. And when he had diligently considered the number of days which he had heard, he discovered that it went back to the time when he had ceased to offer the living bread from heaven for her. Then, since he hated not the soul of his sister, but her sin, he began again the good practice which he had abandoned. And not in vain, not long after she was seen by him to have come to the threshold of the church, but to be not yet able to enter, she appeared also in the dark Raymond, and when he persevered, taking care that no one single day should she be disappointed of the accustomed gift, he saw her a second time in whitish Raymond, admitted indeed within the church, but not allowed to approach the altar. At last she was seen a third time, gathered in the company of the white-robed and in bright clothing. You see, reader, how much the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth. The parting image of the deceased sister in bright clothing 
after two other images of her in black and white clothing suggest that St. Malachi's prayers have released his sinful sister in death to join God in heaven. This, of course, a ghost story, filled, fully entrenched, into the literature of the Catholic Church, but one with a far happier ending than some. If only we're all like St. Bernard of Clairvaux's. Unfortunately, or fortunately, if you're into that sort of thing, we have Bishop Thietmar of Merseburg's writings from the early 11th century which prove they're not all like St. Bernard's. Joking aside, Bishop Thietmar is highly regarded as one of the leading chroniclers of his day throughout Europe. He was a, quote, frontier churchman, as he was called by Andrew Joins. Joins, in the summary for his work, The Chronicle of Thietmar of Merseburg, explains that, his, that this Saxon bishop, Thietmar, quote, gives an account of the expansion of Germanic power into the Slavlands of Mecklenburg and Pomerania, providing a frontier history as it records the ebb and the flow of the possession of these territories under Christian and non-Christian rule, end quote. Joins continues to say that, quote, Thietmar was concerned to refute what he maintained was the Slav belief that everything finishes at the point of mortal death and to uphold and prove Christian belief in the existence of life after death, end quote. With this established, Bishop Thietmar sounds like a pretty solid source for a ghostly tale or two. I mean, Book 1, Chapter 7 of his Chronicon begins with the line, So that none of the faithful in Christ should doubt the future resurrection of the dead, but should eagerly desire the joys of blessed immortality, I will recount what I have discovered happened in the town of Walsblen after it, had, it was rebuilt following its destruction by the Slavs. End quote. And thus begins the first ghostly account of Bishop Thietmar. Essentially, it is the story of the dead offering a portent of death. In this town of Walsbyn, a priest went to the church to sing hymns at dawn. As he passed the adjacent cemetery, he saw a group standing in front of the sanctuary doors. This was certainly a strange situation as it was still before dawn, the sun just beginning to lighten the sky in the east, and only a monk or two would be up at this hour. Maybe. The town had suffered such devastation recently, the priest reminded himself, horrific devastation at the hands of pagan Slavs who were fighting the inevitable tide of the Holy Roman Empire. This very church, in fact, had just been rebuilt after it was razed to the ground by the invaders and the town was only beginning to show signs of healing. However, this crowd standing in front of the sanctuary doors was odd. He walked up to the group of parishioners, Thietmar writes, quote, One of them, a woman whom the priest knew well and who had died recently, asked him what he was doing there. After he told her why he had come, she returned that everything had been taken care of already by them, and also that he did not have long to live. He reported this to his neighbors, and it turned out to be true. End quote. To a spiritual man like Thietmar, one who is de dedicated to proving the Slavic agnostics wrong, this story was outright proof of the resurrection of Christ 
and the eventual resurrection of believers on the day of judgment in the end times. To Thietmar, there's no question. Though this first offering by Bishop Thietmar was creepy, though still on the tame side, this next offering he has written offers a rich tapestry with which to mold. See, as I have made clear already on this podcast, history is rife with stories. It is a treasure trove of tales to tell. Most tales will never be told in truth, while some are documented so specifically that there is little room for interpretation. However, there are many still that offer something much more interesting, the ability to retell through one's own cultural and societal perspective. We've seen this week that writers throughout the Middle Ages were most definitely some great storytellers, but I thought I'd have some fun with Bishop Thietmar's second story he tells. Bishop Baldrick of Utrecht, a real bishop having died the same year of Thietmar's birth, that is 975, decided to fix up an old derelict church for the community of Deventer. Now, Bishop Thietmar, our author here, is writing in Lower Saxony, which bordered Slavic regions still coming under the control of his beloved Holy Roman Empire. And he was very aware of the fire-centered practices and ancestor worship of Slavic pagans, so that may have inspired this tale. Though the beginning of this story is very similar to the one you just heard, Thietmar's own version diverts down a, down a more sinister path, most likely intending to demonize those Slavic pagans he's come to loathe so much. This is the story of Bishop Baldrick's Charge, as I have named it, originally told by Bishop Thietmar of Merseburg, but retold by myself. I hope you enjoy. Upon the rebuilding and consecration of a ruined church in a town devastated recently by a roving band of violent Slavs, a priest, whom Bishop Baldrick had just given the church over to, visited the church early one morning. The priest sees a band of apparitions singing and making offerings through the side windows. He did not stick around to notice whether these were Christian hymns or offerings. He visited the Bishop Baldrick who was still in town for the consecration, and told him everything. Baldrick advised the priest to sleep in the church that night. That night, the priest set up a simple bed, and as the moon shone in through the windows, movement began to be heard within the sanctuary. The priest began to pray, but remained calm. After a while, the small movements, like sounds of shuffling clothing, turned into light bangs on the wooden pews and benches, like what would be heard when a congregation stood and knelt throughout the service. The priest began praying more fervently, now audibly. At this, the movement turned into a commotion, and the priest sat upright, now visibly afraid clutching a wooden cross he had brought with him, and all but yelling his prayers for safety from the supernatural. Invoking Christ's name seemed to further infuriate his guests, and as the sound became a fury of thunderous bangs and cacophonous shouts of anger, no doubt spat in his direction near the altar, the priest's cries turned from prayers of peace to cries of desperation, and in this moment the priest could faintly see smoky figures approaching his bedside. 
lifting it above a normal man's eye level, and before he knew it, the doors to the sanctuary opened by invisible hands to the frigid air outside, and he was flung onto the steps below, crashing and rolling into the dirt path leading up to the church. Terrified, the priest did not look up, but he heard the doors to the sanctuary crash shut, and then nothing. Nothing but the sounds of late-night insects and the breeze between the nearby leaves entered his ears. The priest did not move for a long time. At dawn, he visited Bishop Baldrick again and related everything that had happened. The bishop refused to allow this to happen to a man of the cloth, as an attack on a priest is an attack on the Son of God himself and the church that worships him. The solution, Baldrick said, was to force this ungodly rabble to accept the priest's position as head of the church for those in this world and the next. The priest, Baldrick ordered, was to stay in the church again that night. Before he went in for the night, though, the preach was to spend the day praying as well as gathering saints' relics and holy water. That night, relics encircling the priest's bed near the altar and a vial of holy water and a cross clutched inside his hands, the priest began to pray as he laid down his head. Almost immediately, the movements could be heard throughout the sanctuary again. The priest took the lead, standing up defiantly and loudly invoked the protection of God, holding out his cross and holy water as divine weapons. The commotion grew louder and louder until its deafening roar filled the priest's ears. Between the evil din and his own voice so loud it had begun to crack, the priest suffered a moment of severe vertigo when all of a sudden, it stopped. Silence. His throat felt like he had swallowed knives. His eyes had momentarily dimmed, and his peripheral vision had disappeared, leaving him with the feeling that he was about to faint. He defied this and remained standing, feeling the confidence that comes with the presence of God. After a moment, carefully listening to every creak and whoosh of the winds blowing in through the crack under the main doors, the priest wiped the cold sweat from his forehead and sat down. He loosened his grip on the cross and the vial of holy water. His shoulders fell. He had defeated the demons that haunted this place, the undead who despoiled this holy building. He had claimed it as his own, as Bishop Baldrick had advised him to do. He had acted as a heavenly soldier and succeeded on behalf of Christ. The priest smiled and laid his head back down on the bed. Kicking his feet up, he took a long, deep breath and closed his eyes. He pulled the cross in one hand and the vial of holy water in the other toward his chest, rolled to one side and began whispering a prayer of thanks as he drifted off to sleep. dreamed of flying. The feeling of weightlessness, no doubt, was a sign of God's approval of his good deed that night, beating back the darkness. In his dream, God directed him 
to see the place in which he had sent those apparitions of evil, these soldiers of Satan. And it was hot, very hot. It smelled of burning wood, scorched stones, and bubbling flesh. It was a grisly sight to behold, and an even grislier thing to experience. The smell was nauseating. In his dream, he begged God, Lord, I have seen enough. Please take me away from this wretched place. I have served you well, Lord, and will continue to serve you until my dying breath. Just please, please take me away from here. And suddenly, the weightlessness he had experienced gave way to a feeling of a dozen boulders instantly strapped to his back, and he plummeted toward the open pit, the air getting hotter and hotter until he could feel the skin on his face burning and boiling. His hands and legs also began to bubble and pockets burst as he fell. He awoke and found that he was no longer lying on his side. He was now lying face down. Only... He wasn't lying on anything. As he regained his senses over the eternity that was the next second, he heard the chants and singing of voices around him. He looked to either side, floating above a bonfire of sorts, and he saw the evil, ghastly faces staring at him with grim satisfaction. These were the entities that had thrown him out the night before, and now they were holding him with unseen hands above a fire. The priest's dying thoughts were that of confusion and horror, as one would expect, but somehow through it all the priest was forced to experience death long after he had died. He was forced to remain in that position, watching his flesh fall into the fire and his bones becoming charred to ash, and experience the act of death itself and pain, the pain that accompanied such a death. When the act was complete, his spirit was released. The heat of the fire instantly vanished and the priest was unable to feel anything. He stood, if that's what spirits actually did, and watched the faces of the rabble float away into the church's walls. One remained a moment longer, long enough to say, If the church is not to be shared, it shall be yours and yours alone and he was left in the silent church that was now his tomb.